collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Collective Power. And I know I start every episode saying I'm excited, but I am excited. And the little big reason I'm excited this morning is that I'm back in Germantown radio studio and I have this amazing support of this amazing team. Tom Cassetta, good morning. Buongiorno. And thank you for supporting with the technical side. And as my guest, I have Richard Wexler. Richard, good morning. Morning. It's always great to have you on the show. You've been on the show before. Your life's work has been investigating, monitoring, and calling out the child welfare system for being out of integrity with its fundamental principles, which is keeping children safe. And you've been collecting data and stories and being an activist and advocate for decades now. And I'm thankful to you for the work that you do and for the pathway that you tread. Thank you very much. So I always start folks with the first question, which is, tell me a story about yourself that isn't a bio, like not a professional bio, but just a story that gives us a little bit more of a sense of who you are as a full human being and why you care. Well, I'll tell you the story about how I first got got interested in this. I was a journalism student in 1976, and I produced a radio documentary about the foster care system. In the course of that, I met a young woman who was a college student at the time. She had been in nine different foster homes by the time she was nine years old. And she said that she had survived, she said, by keeping the rage bottled up inside her, as she put it, unlike all my brothers who've been in every jail in New York State. And I came out of that meeting, out of two and a half hours of interviewing her, with a couple of conclusions. First, I was really glad I had chosen journalism as a career, and that was my career at the time. And secondly, I knew I was going to keep coming back to this story. And as I did keep coming back to this story, I kept finding that the facts on the ground weren't matching what the most widely quoted experts kept saying. So you would hear all the time in the 70s and 80s, well, you know, child abuse crosses class lines. And think is, how come I only see poor people in this system? That's right. And when that dichotomy became too much to bear, I wrote a book about it called Wounded Innocence that was in 1990. And that became my bridge into advocacy. You know what you're saying? like deeply impacts me because you know this, I've been following in particular six families since 2004 by interviewing the mothers who had lost their children to foster care. 
And of the six, two have passed away around the age of 50, right? Both from heart conditions. And so when you say I learned how to bottle up the rage inside to end up in that prison industrial complex, uh, what I also hear is like dying of heartbreak inside, right? Like bottling it up as a way to survive on the outside, Mm -hmm. but kind of on the inside being deeply impacted by it. So um, everybody is one way or another, it is going to have a profound and deeply disturbing effect. How one copes may, may differ, but there's no question of the enormous, at a minimum, emotional trauma that is inflicted by needless separation from a family. Yes. And the way our system operates, as you know very well, is sort of like, I took your children the day after, okay, time to get a job now. There's grief counseling sometimes for the children, mm-hmm. but there really is no space for the parents to elaborate their emotions around this loss. It just kind of like, so what's the next thing you need to do to get them back? And then it just becomes this long task list that if it weren't at never ending, maybe could yeah. do something, but it becomes a never ending task list. Even if there were an end, we don't take children away in theory because somebody is jobless. Therefore, why is getting a job a condition to get them back? We don't take, theoretically, children away because of poor housing. Why is getting stable housing a condition to get them back? It perfectly illustrates the extent to which poverty is confused with neglect, which, combined with racial bias, is the single biggest problem in the system. Absolutely. And uh, oftentimes, you know, you and I have both talked about this in different ways, but the discourse around the child welfare system centers on the extreme cases, Mm -hmm. right? And we know that the extreme cases, you wrote an issue paper on this, the one I believe it is, but Mm -hmm. how in truth, minority of children are in the system either for physical or sexual abuse, yes. sexual abuse. Not that that's acceptable, but I think it, the yeah. data is like 22%. Very, it, it varies from community to community, but it's along those lines. It can be even less. Overwhelmingly, the reason children are taken away is, quote, neglect, unquote. Now, there are times when neglect can, have, can of course, be extremely serious. Locking a child in a closet and starving him to death is neglect. So is having the food stamps, the SNAP benefits run out at the end of the month. What do you think is going to happen more often? Similarly, lack of, uh, you know, deliberately abandoning a child is neglect. So is having to go to work to keep your job so you have to leave the child home alone, which is going to happen more often. So there is an enormous confusion of poverty with neglect. And then the cop-out that you will hear now from the system, now that people are finally realizing this, and I just wrote a column on this one for youth today, is, well, it's poverty, but it's not poverty alone. There's something else also. But the something else is usually something caused by poverty and that can be ameliorated by money. So yeah, there may be mental health problems. Be living in intractable poverty can make you mentally ill. You fix the poverty, you're going to at minimum ease the mental illness, you provide money, and poor people can do what middle-class people do, buy the help they need with that mental illness. So it is fundamentally 
a poverty problem. Study after study has shown that even small amounts of money dramatically reduce what agencies call child neglect. It also reduces actual abuse. So if the solution is money, that means the problem was poverty. I love that punchline, right? If the solution is money, then the problem was poverty. That is phenomenal. I'd love to hear, taking a step back, and then we'll dive more into data, because sure. you know, as a journalist who is extremely data-driven, right? you're not a data geek in terms of a person who crunches the data, but you are extremely passionate about it. And through your National Coalition for Child Protection, you collect it nationally, right? What I always say is this, you can find horrible anecdotes about all of the system's failings. The system is arbitrary, capricious, and cruel. It does sometimes leave children in dangerous homes. Even as it takes many more from homes that are safe or could be made safe with the right kind of help, what I always say is when anecdotes collide, it's time to look at the data. And that's where you see that the data shows us how harmful the system is and how much needless removal there is. Super clear. Let's take a step back before we dive sure. more into data. When we say child welfare system, could you mm-hmm. like define it or map it out for listeners who, you know, oftentimes I call it foster care system because that's yeah. just people who are yeah. not child welfare workers understand mm-hmm. foster care system sometimes more easily than child welfare, but the child welfare system is actually a bigger umbrella. So could you just speak a little bit to defining it or mapping it out so that listeners for whom this is kind of new can get an idea of the breadth of it? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, first thing we need to do is stop calling it a child welfare system. We should call it what it is, which is a family policing system. As scholars such as Professor Dorothy Roberts pointed out, That's what it does. It is a police force, and the system works as follows. Anyone can pick up the phone and make an anonymous uh, call accusing anyone else of abuse or neglect. Huge numbers of people are required to do it. They are so-called mandatory reporters. And even if they don't think there's really a problem, they're scared not to call child abuse hotlines because there are penalties for not reporting they are also encouraged to do so. I actually took one of the mandated reporter training courses that is given in Pennsylvania. It is appalling. It basically says, report, report, report. No matter what, no matter how slight the suspicion, that's the message. That is a terrible message for a whole slew of reasons. First, the enormous emotional trauma it brings down upon children, but also it overloads the system so they can't find those very few kids in real danger. So you call a hotline. Remind us who are these mandatory reporters, like teachers and social workers, right? Almost anybody, depending on the state. There are actually 18 states where technically everyone is a mandated reporter. In most states, it's almost any professional who comes anywhere near a child. It could be a school crossing guard, a cafeteria worker, as well as the ones we think of most are teachers, doctors, and so on. So it's extremely widespread. Thank you. Yes. And of course, the consequences of that, in addition to all those false reports, are people who need help are afraid to seek it out because the helper is almost always going to be a mandated reporter. So you drive people away from help, you overload the system, you make all children less safe. So the call goes to the hotline. 
The hotline then decides, and it varies from state to state what the criteria are, whether to screen it in or screen it out. And the criteria for screening in are extremely low. Nevertheless, about half of cases are still screened out. Then that's passed on to caseworkers to investigate. Now in Pennsylvania and about 11 other states, this is a locally run function. That is the city of Philadelphia has its own system. Each county has its own. In many states, it's a statewide function. But in any event, it's then sent on to an investigator. And if it's screened in, they have to go out and do something. In most states, they simply go out and investigate. In some cases, there's something called alternative response, where in theory, they can simply knock on the door and offer help. But by and large, you're sending out the police. And that's what it comes down to. So the family police knock on the door. And you have far fewer rights in that situation than if it's a police officer in a blue uniform. If he wants to go in the house, he has to get a search warrant or get your permission. Family police, it's not clear whether they have to do that or not. What is clear is if you say no, they can say that, cite that in itself as a reason your child is in danger. And what they can do in every state is either they can do it themselves or they can ask law enforcement to do it for them. They can go into the home and take the child. So think about that. We are appalled by stop and frisk by police officers, and rightly so. A police officer can throw a young man, usually a young man of color, up against a wall and frisk him. The family police can come right into your home, strip search your children, and walk out with them. There's no court hearing until after the fact if the worker decides it's sufficiently urgent and it's her decision alone. So that just takes you to investigation and removal. There was a woman that I interviewed last year whose children mm -hmm. were removed and she was at work. Her son was looking after her daughter and literally the child protection worker knocked on the door, seized the daughter and threw her in a van, which is kidnapped by any other standard that would be kidnapped. Yes, that is exactly what they can do. In another state, recently, a judge referred, who, was, who was disturbed by one such case referred to it as grab and go. Okay, I, I get goosebumps just hearing that, but keep going. Okay, so okay. then there's so, the investigation. We, we actually should take a step back. Let's assume they decide not to take the child once they're in the home. There are people who say, see, a lot of the times we don't take the child, so it's no big deal. Well, it's a very big deal for a small child. We're talking about workers who come in and poke and pry in every corner of the home, opening cupboards, closets, asking questions about the most intimate aspects of a family's life, interrogating children about that, and often strip searching the child. There are children who never forget and remain traumatized just by that experience. And by the way, in recent years, of course, you also increase the risk of spreading COVID every time you do that. So that's what happens even when they don't remove a child. That's the minimum that children are going to endure. So then if the child is taken, often the child is taken on the workers say so, the family then has to go to court and fight to get the child back. Now in a criminal proceeding, you at least have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's at least a guaranteed public defender. 
In child welfare proceedings, most states do guarantee an attorney for the indigent, but it's often someone with a terribly overloaded caseload, possibly somebody who is simply a private attorney who was just appointed, who's met the client five minutes before the first hearing, has little background in the field. So there's very little that even if that lawyer wants to do it, very little they can do. Now, there are exceptions. There are places which are funded to provide high quality legal defense, where you are, for example, Community Legal Services of Philadelphia does a great job, but they can handle only a small fraction of the cases. So presiding over all this is a judge who knows, if I hold hundreds of children in foster care, terrible things may happen to the children, but nothing's gonna happen to me, the judge. If I send one child home and and something goes wrong, my career is probably over. The standard for holding the child in foster care is not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's preponderance of the evidence, which is the same standard used to decide which insurance company pays for a fender bender. And to top it off, in most states, including most of Pennsylvania, all the hearings are secret. That's right. So we're talking about essentially star chamber proceedings with almost no due process for families, minimal standard of proof, The deck is stacked at every level, which means that foster care is prolonged and prolonged and prolonged. And then just by virtue of it being prolonged, federal law called the Adoption and Safe Families Act says that the child welfare agency like DHS must go to court and demand the child's right to ever see that parent ever be severed permanently. It's called termination of parental rights, but a better term is termination of children's rights to their parents. So that's how the system works from end to end. And the court case for termination of parental rights starts automatically after 18 months when a child is in care for 15 of the prior 22 months. It doesn't. Now, there are exceptions, Mm -hmm. but the default position is no matter what the reason, no matter whose fault it is that they no matter whether the child needed to be taken no matter whose fault it is that it lasted 15 months. It's even true now, it could be because the services weren't available because of COVID or the visits couldn't take place because of COVID. And the child was too young to handle you know, virtual visits. Doesn't matter. Under ASFA, you're supposed to petition for termination of parental rights. That's why one of the most important things that needs to be done is that law needs to be repealed. I absolutely agree with you. And the result has been of that, that there are more what are called legal orphans, right? So children who have been declared to no longer be connected to their parents who are still in the foster care system, who have not been adopted and have not like, or are in, in institutions and basically have no parent to replace the one that we supposedly terminated the rights of. Or they have simply aged out of the system as they call it, and are completely on their own. Yes, and we estimate that the number of children in a status like that, some of them may technically not have had parental rights terminated, but the number of children aging out with no home of their own is probably about 120,000 higher, and that's a low estimate, than it would have been had ASPA not been passed. And by the way, the one thing I would add about that On the one hand, ASPA does require this. On the other hand, I mentioned there are exceptions. An agency which understands the rank injustice of this and doesn't want 
to pursue termination for these reasons. There is an exception they can invoke if they want to. ASFA made me do it is the, is the family policing system's equivalent of the dog ate my homework. But most agencies want to do it. This mindset of take the child and run and, oh, they'll be better off in a home where the parents look more like us than like them permeates child welfare systems all over the country. So thank you for that big picture. It's super clear. And I have great admiration for your ability to both kind of be in the details of it and be able to give it overview in such concisely, right? Because it's an extremely complex system. And to every one of those knots that you mentioned, there are just so many both rules and exceptions and complications that being able to think of it linearly the way you just did is really remarkable. So tell us a little bit about the data that we know about how family preservation actually is safer for children than what we're doing, which is child removal. Well, there've been all sorts of studies done on the enormous harm of removal and the rotten outcomes for so many children who go through foster care. As one recent news story series put it, we send more foster youth to jail than we do to college. But the excuse has been, oh, well, that must be what the parents did to them. It couldn't be the fault of our wonderful system. But there have now been several studies, two of them massive in size and scope, that compared outcomes for children placed in foster care in typical cases, not the horror stories, compared those outcomes to the outcomes for children in the same sorts of cases left in their own home. And typically, the children left in their own home did better. And that's even without special help and assistance. That's just with the little that the system has to offer. Nevertheless, It is a testament to the fact that the cases didn't need to be brought and to the harm of foster care that the children left in their own homes do better. Obviously not in every case, but typically so. So that's how we know, no, it wasn't what the parents did. It's what the system does. And that's how we, and of course, the outcomes can be improved if you actually helped families with concrete help to ameliorate the worst aspects of poverty housing assistance, childcare assistance, and where it is necessary to add therapy to do it while providing that same kind of concrete help. And you have a series of studies that you mentioned in one of your issue papers that Mm -hmm. one of the prominent reasons that children are safer in their own homes is that like sexual abuse is widespread in Mm -hmm. foster care, not only by parents, but also by youth themselves. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Even if there were no abuse in foster care, of course, it would be enormously harmful. Anybody who saw or heard the video of crying children at the Mexican border understands what separation itself does to a child. It's compounded by the fact that there are very high rates of abuse in foster care itself. Study after study has found abuse in one quarter to one third of family foster homes. And the rate of abuse in group homes and institutions is even worse. And it tells you a lot about agencies and how willing they are to put out, and I will use the term suitable for a radio station, utter nonsense, 
that they will actually say with a straight face, oh no, there's only abuse in 1% or fewer of foster homes. Well, that's the official figure. And that official figure- Oh my God, figure, that's quite a gap. And here's how that happens. The official figure involves agencies investigating themselves. If the abuse is in a foster home, you are investigating yourself because you put the child there. So there's an enormous incentive to see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, and write no evil in the case file. The independent research is vastly higher. And I would just ask anybody- You said one quarter to to one one third, third, right? In family foster homes. Yes. So when you consider how often children move from home to home, you can figure what the odds are. And group homes and institutions are even worse. I'm sure many of your listeners recall the Philadelphia Inquirer series about the Devereaux, I call it McTreatment chain. A huge old line nonprofit chain of residential treatment centers. And the Inquirer exposed that they were rife with abuse. And interestingly, somebody from Devereaux had a great quote about that. She said, it's not just us, it's an industry-wide problem. Well, you know, I completely agree with that. So you have this enormous rate of abuse. Now, by the way, that's in stranger care. In other words, foster homes with strangers. You do not see that to anywhere near the extent if the placement is with a relative, if it's kinship foster care. So that becomes the least harmful form of foster care. And when people give that 1% number, I would ask any agency official who says that with a straight face, you telling me that if you put a hundred former foster youth in a room and said, during the last year you were in foster care, how many of you were abused? Only one would raise her or his hand. They know better. And let's talk a little bit about disproportionality, like how the system, we talked vastly about how the system targets specifically poor Mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about actually black, Latino, and native children Yes, in comparison to white children. Yeah. It's interesting how that debate emerged. For a while, as I mentioned, they denied ever taking children because of poverty. By they, I mean basically the family policing establishment. When people like Professor Dorothy Roberts at Penn Law brought the issue of racial bias to the forefront in her book, Shattered Bonds. And by the way, she has a new book coming out in April uh, called Take It Away. I can't wait for that. In any event, when she basically put that issue on the map, they said, rather than admit to racial bias, they said, oh no, it's not because they're black, it's because they're poor. Oh, really? (laughs) Actually, it's both. And what we've seen is, and what Professor Roberts outlines in her books, is study after study which shows racial bias on top of the class bias. And this is illustrated, for example, by giving caseworkers hypothetical situations and saying, how much of a risk is there to this child? And in the hypotheticals, the only change given to one group to the other is the race of the child. The workers are more likely to say the child is in danger if they're told this hypothetical child is black. So that shows, I mean, we know the figures. We know that that Black and Native children are vastly more likely to be taken away than white children. But these data tell us that the reason for that is, no, child abuse is not rampant among non-white families. Racial bias is rampant in the family policing system. And these studies show it. 
So one of the things that most surprised me reading your issue papers, now that we kind of like looked at data was just one piece of data that children are safer in Alabama. Tell me a little bit more about that. <laughs> yeah, like that it's one me. of the states that stands out and having good practices. Like how did that happen? And why is that one of the results? It surprised me too. The reason it happened was Alabama was one of the states where there was a class action lawsuit. But this was a different kind of lawsuit. Most of the lawsuits, I call them muck lawsuits, basically are ways to kind of have more inspections, hire more caseworkers. All it does is make the system bigger. It doesn't do anything to make them better. Sometimes they I make love, the system I love make lawsuits is phenomenal. Alabama Go was ahead. different. The Baslon Center for Mental Health Law and an Alabama group brought this lawsuit. One of my groups, uh, a member of my group's board of directors, is legal director for Bazelon and brought that suit. And this suit said, rebuild your system around family preservation. And then what also helped was the person running the Alabama system at the time, a gentleman named Paul Vincent, instead of being defensive about this said, wow, what an opportunity here. I've always wanted to fix this system and now we've got the chance to do it. So they built the system around safe, proven help to families. So for example, Alabama caseworkers have access to something called flex funds, which is simply a small pool of money that they can spend on whatever a family needs, a one shot. So father doesn't have a job, say. He can't get to interviews because his car's broken down. The flex funds fix the car. Or first month's, last month's rent and security deposit on a better place to live. They also demanded of providers that they'd be flexible enough to give a family whatever they need. The old contract said the providers would say, well, here's a list of what we will provide. It doesn't matter what the families actually need. The new contracts say, no, you do what the families need. Now, there's been backsliding in Alabama. The lawsuit is long gone. This always happens. There's a tendency to revert to old practices. Nevertheless, Alabama is still, relatively speaking, significantly better than much of the country and that lawsuit is the reason why. How did that lawsuit start? Like who got to set it up that way? Because I also have often lawyers who come to me from other parts of the country and say, I want to sue DHS. And the question mm -hmm. becomes, you know, can this be done? How can it be done? How can it be done effectively? So how was it that that particular lawsuit worked in having an impact. And we'll talk about backlash later. I, yeah. I heard the yeah, backlash no, the reason The Baslon Center, they actually uh, wrote a book about this quite a while ago called Making Child Welfare Work. And they mentioned there that before they brought their suit, they looked at the previous lawsuits and they analyzed them. And they said, why isn't this working? And that led them to the idea that they should seek different goals, do it a different way. And that led to a settlement that emphasized keeping families together. So it can be done. There are people who bring the McLawsuits and say, oh, you can't sue about kids who aren't in the system yet, but you can settle about those kids and you can craft innovative settlements. Alabama has proven you can do it if you have the guts and imagination to try. And so let's talk a little bit about backsliding and backlash. Sure. Well, the backs, they're a little bit different. Backlash is when, let's say, you have managed to curb entries into foster care, 
and you have managed to do that, and your data on reabuse, on what's called foster care recidivism, show you are doing it with no compromise of safety. But then there's a horror story case. And everybody forgets that back before the reforms, there were also horror story cases. Often there were more such cases. Nevertheless, the family policing establishment comes out of the woodwork and says, oh, see, you're doing too much to keep families together. And sadly, I will almost guarantee you that that will happen in Philadelphia within the next few years, because Philadelphia has finally begun to make some progress. Philadelphia was a city which not long ago took away children at the highest rate among America's top 10 cities and their surrounding counties, even when family right. rates of family poverty are factored in. That has changed for the better. There has been improvement. Philadelphia is still above the national average, still well above New York and Chicago, but it has definitely improved, which means there are people just waiting for the next high profile tragedy to take place so they can point their fingers and say, see, you went too far. Now, we know that's not so for the simple reason that not as if no child ever died back when Philadelphia was taking away children at the highest rate among America's big cities. Absolutely. On the contrary, what Alabama showed, for example, when they had independent court monitors watching, they found child safety improved. Same thing with another state that followed a similar model in a consent decree, and that was Illinois. They have had a terrible problem with backsliding for a variety of reasons. And there's been another surge in removals in Illinois. But until then, they too had independent court monitors who found that the reforms made children safer. The horror stories, tragically, go in every direction. Perhaps you may remember a recent case in which a child was taken away, probably because of poverty, placed in an adoptive home were the adoptive parents, uh, foster home first, with somebody who had worked for a private child welfare agency. They adopted the child, raped her, and murdered her. Now, of course, that's not all adoptive parents. That's hardly any adoptive parents. But the point is, as I said before, when anecdotes collide, it's time to look at the data. And the data show that for the overwhelming majority of children, the overwhelming majority of the time, family preservation is the safer option. So my suggestion is to any listeners is please be very skeptical when, not if, no system can prevent every horror. When the next horror story case occurs in, in Philadelphia and when the usual suspects come forward and say and start wagging their fingers and saying, see, Philadelphia did too much to curb foster care, that is utter nonsense. On the contrary, such tragedies are more likely when your mentality is take the child and run and your system is overloaded. And what are the initiatives you know about in Philadelphia that are bringing this curb towards family preservation? I think it's less a particular program or initiative than it is the pressure that has been put on Philadelphia DHS. The fact that people have noticed that Philadelphia is an extreme outlier, have noticed that the system, uh, that that didn't keep children safe. And there has been less of this knee-jerk response that the answer to every tragedy is take the child and run. And there are a number of reasons for that. A change of leadership to, at DHS, grassroots activism, 
by groups like DHS Give Us Back Our Children, the excellent work of Community Legal Services of Philadelphia, and the fact that Children's Hospital of Philadelphia made a big strategic blunder a couple of years ago. They called in a ridiculous report on a member of the city council, council member David O. That made him wonder about this system. And he started holding hearing, demanding hearings, taking action. And in fact, he got the council to create a special committee on child separations, an advisory committee. I serve on that committee. And the existence of all that pressure, plus, as I say, a leadership change at DHS, has begun to get DHS moving in a better direction. There is still, of course, a very long way to go. And let's talk a little bit about a study that you mentioned in one of your issue reports about New York during COVID providing a kind of interesting experiment Yes, um, where everyone was ready to say that abuse would increase in the face of COVID because mandatory reporters had less access to children Mm -hmm. because schooling was at home and so on and so forth. And yet the numbers tell a different story. That actually also ties in perfectly to our earlier discussion about racial bias. Because think of the myth that emerged almost as soon as COVID began to spread. Here we were in the middle of a racial justice reckoning, and yet over and over and over, journalists bought into a myth that went like this. Now that overwhelmingly middle-class, disproportionately white, um, mandated reporters, quote unquote, teachers, doctors, especially teachers, aren't gonna be able to have their eyes constantly on children who are overwhelmingly poor and disproportionately non-white, those children's parents will unleash upon them a pandemic of child abuse. And you heard that over and over again. What could be a better example of implicit racial bias then the immediate assumption that as soon as the white people's eyes are turned away, the non-white people are going to beat up their kids. And yet that's what we heard over and over and over again. Early on, there were a few national media who raised questions about it. And then came a number of studies, actually, the first of which was this fascinating study you mentioned out of New York City. What happened there was when the agency New York City's family police agency had to step back. Community-based programs stepped up. Mutual aid organizations stepped up. They provided concrete help. Combine that with the cash assistance, the huge anti-poverty programs that were provided as emergency COVID relief. And as a result, there was no pandemic of child abuse. Indeed, even the head of the family police agency admitted it did not happen. And that's what this study found. And he said, you know, maybe all that time parents and kids spent together was good for them. So there was no pandemic of child. Subsequently, there have been even more. The Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics published an article that under the headline, physical abuse did not increase during the pandemic, period. And it showed, for example, there was a lot of mythology about how, oh, emergency room visits are skyrocketing, supposedly, early on. They weren't. Now that we've looked back at the data, there was no increase. 
to the extent that some pediatric emergency rooms had an increase, the authors of the, of the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics article theorized people who normally would have just gone to any old emergency room, children were being diverted because of course, the adult emergency rooms were really, really busy. So this whole myth emerged and it hasn't stopped by the way. Just last week, a Virginia television station repeated the whole pandemic of child abuse myth. It shows how deeply ingrained the mythology and the horror stories have become. So highlighting kind of both the data we have around what doesn't work and mm -hmm. some kind of beacons of light in terms of some things that we see can work or do mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. What is it that you envision? for like at best, what would this look like? Well, there are a few things. The first, probably the most important single reform you could do at this point would be high quality legal representation. In other words, the kind of thing that Community Legal Services Philadelphia does, the kind of thing that is now the norm in New York City, where they did a massive study of that, by the way, and the study showed it reduced time in foster care significantly with no compromise of safety. In fact, I hope Philadelphia will go beyond the New York City model where the lawyer isn't guaranteed until after the agency has intervened to a model called pre-petition representation, which basically means as soon as they know they're going out on a case, they have to notify a family defender. And if they can't literally go out with them, they're at least at the other end of the phone line. Now the argument will be, oh no, you're gonna have people get child abusers off. Well, that's not how it works. What happens with a defense team is you have a lawyer, a social worker working with that team, and sometimes a parent advocate who's been through the system herself. And what they can do is craft alternatives to the cookie cutter service plans that agencies like DHS typically issue. Instead of saying to someone who's poor and can't afford childcare, oh, you also now have to find a time without childcare to go to a counseling appointment and take a parent education class. Instead, you provide childcare. Or you say, okay, at this point, maybe mom can't take care of the child, but what about this grandma or this aunt whom you've overlooked? Or yes, there is a serious, yes, the housing is dangerous. Move to better housing. So they craft alternatives. And again, the study shows there's no compromise in safety and significantly less foster care. And by the way, it also pays for itself because foster care is really expensive. And between the savings on reduced foster care and the fact that in many cases, the federal government will pay half the cost for this legal representation, it also pays for itself. So that'd be the first reform. Obviously, there are any number of things I'd like to see legislatively. I'd like to see ask for repeal. I'd like to see a law called the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, which neither prevents nor treats child abuse repealed. Oh, and I'd like to see mandatory reporting repealed. Now, that doesn't mean there's no reporting. It means professionals can exercise their professional judgment. Instead of being in this position where people are afraid to go to them because they're mandated reporters, and they're afraid not to report stuff they know is nonsense because they fear the penalties. I love how you're treading a pathway. And I'm curious, what do you see on the other side of this pathway? Like, what is that future that you see possible on the other side of this? 
if everything that you just said were enacted, like what would you see then? The future I see at the end of it is a vastly smaller system, a system that only intervenes coercively in the true horror story cases. And there are such cases. There is a reason to have, just as there is crime, there is a reason to have some version of police. There's a reason to have some version of family police, but it can be totally reimagined from the version that we have now. So that what places it is help to families before there's a problem, crisis intervention help when there's a problem, but no need to call the family police because you're giving the family the help they need. That means foster care becomes dramatically smaller. So you don't have to worry as much about abuse in foster care because it's no longer what you would call a seller's market. You don't have to ignore signs of abuse because your foster care system, because there's a so-called shortage of foster parents. There isn't. There are too few foster parents. There are too many foster kids. So if you reduce the number of kids in foster care, you will have better quality foster care for the very few who need it. So that's what I hope we will see someday. So I think that's kind of where you and I just wanting to toggle a little bit, right? With where our reciprocal scholarship has taken us. Like, I think that's where you and I defer. Like, I do think we can abolish the system, not in the short term, but mainly I think that the harsher cases that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. right? A little bit because of, as you highlight the media coverage, we tend to think about the horror cases as helpless. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, children always come home, right? Like they always go back home. They age out of foster care and they go home, right? Yes. So even in those extreme cases where kids were molested by their families or physically abused, if they're not equipped emotionally to go back home after they, basically they get re-traumatized after they leave foster care, Mm -hmm. right? Because we haven't emotionally equipped them to go home. And I think the system, one of the illusions of the system is that you can actually remove a child forever. And I think you can impact the relationship and traumatize the relationship forever, for sure. But in my experience, children always go back to their parents. They may go back to their parents and, as I said, be re-traumatized, but they do go back. And so the question I have is, like, to me, the system can be abolished if it has a focus on healing for the extreme cases, right? Like, I love what you're laying out in terms of, yes, first, we need to stop confusing neglect with abuse. (laughs) That's number one, right? Like, we need to remove 80% of the cases that are clogging up the system, so to speak. And then for the severe cases, I still don't think a family policing, because it's sort of like saying, I don't think we need a family policing system, not even for the harsher cases, because the harsher cases are, in fact, trauma. And so it's sort of like us saying, yes, let's only lock up the crazy people and let's like reform everyone else. Policing still doesn't work, I think, Mm -hmm. in the extreme cases as well. I think we could create a system where children are removed temporarily. But the big question is still, how is that child going to heal in the face of the life experiences that now are their life experiences and give the family an opportunity to heal with them. The family may still say no, (laughs) but those are my thoughts. 
if you have a system where you still remove the children temporarily, then you still have the system. You haven't abolished. So we're close. So, so we're, we're pretty close here. What I'm saying is there are a very small number of cases where there really is a serious immediate danger to that child. They are very few and far between, but we need to recognize it and act on it. And a system that isn't overloaded with all the rest will be better able to recognize it and act on it. I think my concern is that anytime we talk about a system inside of the history of the United States as we know it, inevitably becomes punitive. And that's the backlash part, right? Like yes. there's an underlying punishment like rationale to our system as it is now. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we had fewer cases, as you say, if that would be enough to eradicate the punishment part of it. And I don't think it is. Like then the question to me becomes, how do we shift the intention away from punishment and towards an actual healing? Which honestly, isn't just in the child welfare system. Like that's part of the criminal justice system and the juvenile justice and the education system for that. Like punishment was woven into our systems. So we're always trying to like, in my book, I call it like the Santa Claus complex. We're always trying to sift the naughty and the nice. Like that's basically what our systems do. They sift continuously. Well, what what we really sift is the poor from everyone else. Yes. Because they are inherently decreed naughty and everyone else is inherent decreed nice. For example, we are constantly hearing about, oh, we have to take these children away because of uh, substance use. Well, remember Betty Ford? When she was addicted to pills and to alcohol, nobody sent Child Protective Services to the White House to check on her 17-year-old daughter. That's right. On the contrary, Betty Ford was hailed as a hero for confronting her addiction, going public about it, helping others, and founding a celebrity rehab center. So let's apply the Betty Ford standard to everyone who has a substance use problem. I love that. Richard, it was phenomenal to be with you today. I mean, there's just a life's work and a commitment that you've brought to this topic for decades that I honor. I share the kind of disgust and the haunting of the first people I interviewed as you do. So I kind of feel connected to you in that way, because I Mm -hmm. get how kind of one story can stand out so much that then it like drives the next decades of your life without even knowing it. And I honor your commitment to justice that keeps you in the work, right? Thank Um, you very much. I'm curious if you have any last thoughts for us and how can people get in touch with you? Okay, uh, to get in touch, you can uh, contact us at info at nccpr.info. But I have to emphasize, unfortunately, because we are so small, you have just interviewed the entire staff, um, we can't assist with individual cases. We can talk about systemic issues. There's also a section on our website, nccpr.org, called How You Can Help Reform Child Welfare that talks about steps that people can take at a grassroots level wherever they are. And of course, you can subscribe to the NCCPR blog at nccprblog.org. As your last thoughts, can you tell us a little bit of those steps that people can take for where they are? Well, to try to find other people like themselves. Well, actually, let me take that back. That's the second step. 
first step, what is the status of your case? Because going public at some stages can make things worse for you. And no one should have to sacrifice that way because agencies can be terribly vengeful. Mm-hmm. But if you can speak out, then that's the first step. Organize others in your community. Learn the context. We have a lot of resources at nccpr.org. And then start reaching out to lawmakers and start reaching out to your local media, particularly when they do the horror story case, when they, with usually with the best of intentions, err in explaining the system, when they say there's a pandemic of child abuse, when there is not. Thank you for being with us, Richard. It was great having you. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.